Hello everybody and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, 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 very much for listening to mine. This was from a scientist who goes by the name of Ash. She does a podcast called the Transhumanist Podcast. It's very interesting. It's a, it's a very short podcast, probably about 15 minutes or so. This podcast obviously is not 15 minutes. We had a nice conversation, I would say, basically about the future, but also the past and how the future and the past, especially when you're talking about the Renaissance and sort of the beginning of the printing press in my mind, at least in Europe, how that really parallels to now in a very serious way. Um, you know, I just see this every single day almost. This great big parallel between the printing press in the late medieval Renaissance era and, and now uh, with computers and the internet and such. And, and so many people in my own personal life have said to me, Ben, all you do all day is talk about technology. Well, that's because, frankly, I, I can't not talk about it. I mean, it's driving so much change. It's driving so much cultural change, economic change, political change. I'm, I'm writing a blog post about it for my blog, which you can read, by the way, at thehistoryvoyager.com. I'm going to leave a link below in the description. But in that, I talk a lot about how our society, kind of like Facebook and, and that sort of that Web 2.0 idea of like Facebook and, and Twitter and, and like that, snuck up on us. And, and now like we're all adults using what used to be essentially toys, basically, uh, but for adult purposes. And I don't think even though, you know, society talks about this, a lot. I mean, you know, I can talk to numerous podcasters about it all over the planet, as it turns out. I don't think society writ large has thought about this and the ramifications of this really at all. Um, and that, to me, is troubling. Very, very troubling. Because, look, the Internet is not a fad, Okay. The various social media platforms themselves might be fads. Like, I could see Facebook, at least in the West, or Global North, or whatever you want to call it. I could see Facebook dying or going away or changing or whatever. But the concept of you want to get out there and you want to communicate with folks in, in cyberspace, frankly, is as old as cyberspace, honestly. And just right off the top of my head, I'm thinking now about a friend of mine um, that I've had on the show many times, a, a very intelligent man uh, by the name of Alex Johnson. Uh, his stories, he's, he's got some stories, some of which I've recorded and are on the podcast feed, um, about the early days of him in chat rooms and such. That's kind of illustrative of my point here, which is that, you know, Twitter may go away, or Facebook may go away, or TikTok may go away, or, or Instagram may go away, or whatever. 
But the principle that those things allow people to communicate with the wider society, essentially for the price of a phone and a camera, I don't think that's going away. And actually, I honestly think, I honestly believe, while those platforms may go away or evolve or change or whatever, I think virtual reality is going to come. And virtual reality is going to change the game. It's going to change the game, not just for social media, not just for computers, not just for the internet, but for society as a whole, for the planet as a whole. And we talked that about that some in this episode here. Um, I really enjoyed talking to her. We've made very tentative plans for me to come on to her show. Um, I, I'm going to, you know, I really want to do that. That'd be fun. Um, anyway, folks, uh, give this a listen. It's called um, Transhumanism and the Future. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Hello, everybody. My name is Ben Kitchings, and I'm here with Ash from the Transhumanism Podcast. Hi, everyone. <laughs> hi, Ben. Oh, hi, hi. And I thought, first of all, I, your podcast seems fascinating. It's basically a podcast about the future. Yeah, the, I like to think about it as like a throuple love child between science, sci-fi, and philosophy. A throuple love child. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. Um, hold on. Okay, that's different. All right, there we go. I just had to put my mic back in the stand. Mm -hmm. Um, all right, yay! Come to our first edit. So, talk <laughs> to me about the future, basically. <laughs> that is a loaded question. I mean, there are a million ways to talk about the future. Which one would you be interested in hearing? Okay, let's talk about. What do you think the driving force in how does technology drive us towards the future? Uh, that is a very interesting question. I would say that um, a lot of the mindset towards technology has really changed in the past 50 years, I would say. And now we are way more reliant on technology, but at the same time, we're more, way more optimistic about it. So I think that there are many, many research projects right now that are have a lot of potential to change our life completely. I mean, one of them is Neuralink that Elon Musk is working on. Then there are a lot of um, more niche ones like in health and in biohacking. Um, however, there's another perspective where we've also become more wary of technology and we're more cautious about it and things like data protection. So I think that will very much affect the socioeconomic ideas and how the public views the technology in the next, I would want to say, 20 years. That is also going to shift on how much we will actually let technology drive us into the future. Do you see... So one of the things that I see daily is people 
figuring out after the pandemic or after 2020 that they can work from home more and that, you know, the world is getting smaller and, and things like that. How do you see that moving forward? Yeah, certainly the pandemic has really changed our approach to the work-life balance and in general how we work. The trend that I see now is a lot of people are used to working from home, even though it's been just, you know, two years, if you look at the big picture, but it's definitely more comfortable, it's definitely more um, reliable and easier. However, there is also a big shift between how people communicate with each other due to that. Uh, I personally, I work in science and academia, and there, there are many debates right now going on whether we should really shift back from to being in person again, but a lot of people are finding it hard. So I think now is the time where the hybrid model is becoming more prominent. And I think this will be one of the driving forces for the technology that will let us communicate cl more closely while being apart. Well, I mean, if you think about it, um, so I have a history background. And if you think about it, working from home is actually really old. Mm -hmm. You know, it's only been in the last, uh, just since the first decade of the 20th century, really, mm -hmm. that people started working from somewhere, not their house, pretty much. So in some ways... I think the reason why people want to gravitate more towards working from home is because it just feels more natural in some deep, like deep way, basically. It's what I think. I mean, even if you look at the evolutionary psychology, the ideas are that we have evolved, our brains have evolved just because we have always gravitated towards having a home, towards having a collective from where we can have a base and from where we can go out and hunt and then come back there. So I think it is very natural to gravitate back into trying to work from home. Mm -hmm. However, there's also a, a big social... I'm sorry, do you hear like a, some random noise from my, from my side or not? I don't really. Now that you played with the game, I, I, I don't hear it. Okay, much. perfect. Because my pet is trying to climb the curtain for some reason. And <laughs> I was a little concerned. Yeah. But yeah, coming back to what I was talking about, basically, um, sorry, I lost the track of my thought because of this. Basically, like you're saying, we've evolved. Yes, yes, exactly. We've evolved towards being closer and working from home. However, there's also the social aspect where we need to communicate. And now that the living has become even more nuclear than before, a lot of people are living alone. Families are becoming much smaller, much further from each other. There's no more this aspect of community. So and the need for community hasn't gone anywhere. So we need to find a way, probably through technology, to still have the sense of community without having to go anywhere. I mean, I think what's going to happen is, like, our, our living arrangements might evolve more than our... I mean, okay, I, I live in one of the... I live in a city that has horrendous traffic. <laughs> in America, okay? Um, 
very rarely do you meet somebody in my city that is romantic about let me go back on the highway and drive <laughs> across town to the job i think people are going to change their living situation more than they would be willing to change how they work or whatever no i would definitely agree there how would you think they would change their living situation maybe more communal or more um you know more communal things like that i live um so in america i don't know what you call it in germany but we have like what we call shopping malls um yeah, we also have shopping malls. Okay. Well, I, I figured you did, but you might <laughs> not call it the same thing. Yeah. Um, but um, they're dying, basically. And some you've got to do some. There's a market for I want to go somewhere. I want to walk around and eat food, but not necessarily shop for anything. Hmm. I think that's a real thing. Uh, yeah. I think also the, the, the culture, the malls have a big culture behind them, you know, just, mm. you know, in teenagers <clears throat> hanging out at the mall, going on dates, that whole idea behind it. Now that is really coming to die. But I think that might be actually something that the meta from Facebook are thinking about accomplishing something like that, but with social media, with having a platform where everybody can do that without leaving their home. Yeah, I mean, and also, I was it last week or the week before? I experienced um, basically virtual reality for the first time in a controlled mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. And even just what they can do today is just amazing. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I definitely agree. My experience with virtual reality, the first time I tried it, it was I was very nauseous, but it was so surprising how within 30 minutes, I would say, I was completely engulfed by the experience and I, my brain basically couldn't distinguish the reality. It was the reality for me. Well, I could, I could distinguish it because, I mean, I, it was like one of these meta um, things. It was about mm -hmm. a space shuttle launch. One of okay. Launches. And it obviously looked like a video game, but it looked mm -hmm. like a good video game. It looked like a really immersive video game. And my thought is, like, if you, if you could make that more like a movie, more like, I mean, you know? There are already quite a few VR movies. VR storytelling is a thing. Um, it's more of like an interactive storytelling, but it exists and it's quite interesting, I would say. Mm. Uh, at the same time, this is a little bit of a different direction. This is more like entertainment rather than, you know, a platform where you can socialize, you know? Mm -hmm. I wonder what socialization would be like in, let's say, a virtual reality because we would rely on much fewer senses that we rely now in conversation, you know, how facial expressions, how body language are so important. Obviously, we would not be able to express that in virtual reality to the same extent we do it in real life. And I think we really underestimate how much this little social cues, this little bodily cues p play into how we perceive other people. And I always wonder yeah. how would that be if we cannot communicate it anymore? Right. And I wonder how 
So Meta is Facebook. Yes. And I I wonder how people are going to trust Facebook or Meta with their virtual reality data. I mean, I I could certainly see where a business, uh, like if I had a business that I had to have virtual reality meetings uh, with my staff, I certainly wouldn't want to have those over Meta. Uh, (laughs) No. Yeah, no, I understand. I think Facebook really stained their name and they were already dragged through mud. So I think they will need to do gigantic attempts to restore their reputation for people to trust it. I think that's what they're trying to do with their rebranding with the whole meta idea. They're trying to clear from the name Facebook, but the thing is everyone knows it is the same thing. I don't think there's very few people who are not going to connect the dots between this two. So I think I am actually very curious on what and how they're going to go about that, how they're going to go about selling this idea to people. I mean, I don't know if you have heard, but I think it was about a week ago or two, the, there was almost a scandal how the beta testers, how the people looking into Meta, they were basically making fun of it because the rea- the virtual reality looked so much worse than it was promised to look. So the expectations are high. Their reputation is already quite stained. So it's going to be hard. But it's interesting to see. And also, like, there's another thought I have. And the other thought is, you and I are people that think the future is amazing or that sort of, to some extent, look forward to this. Most people are not that way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think that was my main motivation to even creating my podcast, The Musings on Transhumanism, is because of how pessimistic we seem to view the future especially in the science fiction way um if you look into the science fiction of the last hundred years almost almost all of it is very dystopian and at least the most popular ones but if you look back at what joel verne wrote it is a very different approach i think at if you look into more like retrofuturism people were way more optimistic about what is to come so, and honestly, working in science and just looking at the mindset of people in science and in technology, I I am quite optimistic. I, I see there are a lot of people that put a lot of value in ethics, and I am pretty sure that it's not going to be anything quite dystopian as people think it would be, unless we have a war or nuclear war and everyone dies, of course, that is. Well, why do you, okay, so that's an interesting question. Let me ask you, mm-hmm. why do you think um, we, at, not you and I maybe, but society, human society writ large, is more pessimistic now about technology than they were during Joel's Burns Day? Um, that's an actually very interesting question. One thing... Of course, there is this aspect of human condition in general where we're afraid of the new things. But I think the main driver of this fear right now is how powerful the technology is becoming and how we can see technology doing things that we cannot do. I mean, starting from computers to AI to... Every, and now that we see something that is more powerful than us, 
it is understandable that we fear it, you know? I think in the times of Jules Verne, that was not an issue. Nobody back then could even imagine what technology can come to be what it is these days, you know? And the other thing, I'm, I'm slowly re-listening to, uh, I don't know if you know who this is, but uh, I'm re-listening to Dan Carlin's podcast on the First World War. Yeah. And the thing that that really hit home with me this time about the the First World War is that it showed all these people what industrialization could do. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's like we live on the other side of that. Like we live on the other side of seeing the bad aspects of progress and technology. And I wonder if that informs us a lot. If we have so many examples of well, this is what happens when you, you know, have trains and planes and automobiles, and we already have to deal with viruses and scam calls and this and that, you know? I mean, there is this theory that um, The Wizard of Oz was written as something against industrialization, which only shows us how horrified people were at the time when industrialization, especially after the war, when we saw what it can do, became of it. And it is honestly no surprise that now that technology has, you know, caused so many problems, we would be scared. But at the same time, I think that the fear might be less now or at least not more than it was at those times, simply because we also do not perceive our life without technology. You know, we don't really have, we we cannot imagine living without smartphones and computers. So we also don't want to go back, at least, I mean, many people don't want to go back to, you know, living on a farm or in the forest. So there's also a need to keep the technology, but keep it safe. So it's a little bit of a different type of fear. Well, also, I mean, think about think about this though. Um, like we don't think of a pen as technology, but mm-hmm. we don't think of paper like as a technology, but it definitely is. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's like. I guess what you're saying is we're on the road to people not thinking smartphones are technology. <laughs> yes, exactly. It has become such an important and basically impossible to give up part of our life that is just exactly. I think the most thing that sparks fear these days is um, moving from this mindset of technology being a tool for humans like even like weaponry but moving towards technology having a mind of its own you know being able to do things without you know roughly speaking having to consult with us you know that's why artificial intelligence you know terrifies so many people although we are very very far away from it being able to have any kind of free will or a mind of its own equal to the human mind so i think it's also this switch from just losing control over what we are trying to invent that drives a lot of fear let me i talked to somebody i talked to a scientist i guess about a year or two now ago 
and he talked about how we're on the road to curing cancer and we're on the road to curing Alzheimer's and all this and that. And the thing that occurs to me is that at some point in the future, you know, 60 and, and 70 and 80 years old is going to be a lot younger than it is today. So is society ready for, you know, vibrant 80-year-olds, for example? Uh, just as an example, do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. what would that even look like? Just to, you know, people 85 years old that are perhaps still in the prime of life. No, for sure. I mean, even from the climate uh, I do point of view and overpopulation point of view it, it is going to be quite problematic there's already a housing crisis almost everywhere in the world so oh, yeah. that is going to be very interesting in the aging population based i think the retirement age is going to go way way up it's so to. yeah i mean we will have to come up with something and hopefully it's going to be something ethical and something not dystopian if you if you know what i mean in that sense but yeah i mean so in now, general yeah. so to me the entire decade of the 20s has felt like the future like the <laughs> whole like 2020 2021 2022 feel, almost feels like the whole thing feels like the future to me and the thing that occurs to me is like dystopian isn't really it's not utopian and dystopian it's dystopian <laughs> it's like it's just the times that we live in you know like <laughs> i mean dystopia is more of a fiction genre i would say and the point of it is not to try to predict the future but to take something in the society these days and get it to the absurd level where we can criticize it without you know directly having it in a, in a non-fiction manner and i think that's what the dystopian all like 1984 and brave new world have done so it makes sense that we're not gonna live in a dystopian world because it's you know it's not something that we consider as reality even in like futuristic sense but i'm, I'm actually curious why did 2020s and 2020s in general seem like already living in the future for you why not you know maybe 2010s um, okay. Well, the 2010s did, but the 2020s, even before the COVID, I, I distinctly remember being out with some friends in January telling them, man, this feels like the future. And I think the reason why was I could already kind of see where like all this technology was going as far as shrinking mm-hmm. things and that's to me that's what's so fascinating about the things that we've done post or post lockdowns with covid mm-hmm. is we've all we did was take technology and, and software packages that already existed right like i, yeah. I talked to a fella i talked to a fella who uh had to write, had to literally write a letter home to his parents and tell them, please find my Skype password and mail it to me. (laughs) 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 
so that you know because he used skype when he was a boy and now he needs skype to to work but yeah that makes sense i don't remember the last time i used skype (laughs) i definitely not be able to recall my password at this point i do it was a month ago Uh, (laughs) (laughs) it was a month ago um but so when we start developing things, when we start developing packages and programs and whatever, with the idea of being a working person in your house, but you're working remotely, mm-hmm. or the idea that, you know, I don't know, it strikes me that... You know, it's like changing the direction of what we want for the working conditions. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, improving the offices, improving the work-life balance in the sense where you have to show up for work, we might actually be developing a, developing a better software, developing a better programs and, you know, security for computers and things to be able to work better remotely. So, yeah, that might, I mean... But that's also, that's, honestly, I think that has actually turned out to be a little bit of a problem for capitalism. I don't know if you've heard, but many, like Apple and Google, they were really having issues with people preferring to work from home. So the whole dynamic is changing and people in charge are not really happy about it, which in a way makes sense. If you're used to having things in a certain way, and if you think that's the more productive way and definitely working from home, I think it's better for mental health quite often and having this freedom is better for mental health for many people. But is it really better for productivity? We don't know. We don't have enough data to be able to tell yet. Well, Maybe, yeah. I get what you're saying. And, and mm-hmm. as an American embedded in a neoliberal capitalist <laughs> order, uh, yeah, okay. But here's the thing. I think a lot of people have come to the point where they just don't care. Mm. You know, they, <laughs> you know, they just don't care. I mean, maybe the boss cares. Yeah. Right. Maybe the landlord cares, but you know, whatever. <laughs> no, that, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. I yeah. mean, if it's not this boss, someone else will be okay with it. So it's not like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. let me, when we were talking off air about what I think is going to be the biggest change, certainly in my lifetime coming up. I, I was talking to this futurist, um, mm-hmm. and he was talking to me about VR, mm-hmm. and he but he couldn't think of a practical application for it, like a reason somebody you'd run out to the store and get VR glasses, you know. Yeah. What I thought, and I immediately told him. I said, "Oh, I do. I can think of it right now." And you're too old, (laughs) even though weirdly he was younger than me. And that is, people are going to meet people. You're going to meet people in virtual reality, and you're going to want to be with that person, or you're going to want to do things. You, you know. No, for sure. That is going to change a lot of our ways of how we communicate with people. And like, yeah, like we were talking about now we live, our communities are mostly based on where we are, what religion we have, what culture we live in and grown up in. But now all of that is changing. We're not dependent on it as much, you know, we and with VR, with systems like this, we will be able to find a community elsewhere, elsewhere, you know, that isn't we can find people that have 
a different religion and that we can share it with them. And I think many things that we have nowadays, such as patriotism and nationalistic views and many cultures based on where you live, they're going to change because it's not going to matter where you are physically. Our community can be all over the world. And that might, as you were saying, that might really be a challenge for our legal system these days, you know? I mean, if we talk about marriages, where are you going to register if you live on the different sides of the of the world? But at the well, same time, eventually, oh, yeah. ideally, eventually, you'd move in together. Hopefully, but, yeah. Just saying, like to meet people, like to meet that person or whatever, you know. <laughs> no, I, I I understand, of course. I, I'm talking more about at, at the. At a more extreme end, however, I don't know if it's similar in U.S., but even this days in Europe, because there are so many people that come from different parts of it or different countries in it entirely, there are this new regulations about marriages and legal and legalization coming in. So it is quite interesting how that might change even more when moving in directly would not be an issue. Maybe people will want to get married while living in different countries, and that's totally okay, you know? Let me ask you a a question, because I've never never thought it. It's never occurred to me, um, honestly. Say, like, if somebody were living in Poland, okay, Mm -hmm. and they married somebody from, let me just pick a European country. They married somebody from Greece, in mm-hmm. Poland or Greece mm-hmm. or wherever, do are European countries obligated to acknowledge that marriage? Mm, that is an interesting question. I'm not sure about yeah. all European countries whether they would accept it, especially if it's a like same sex marriage. I'm not sure all the countries in Europe have already accepted it and legalized it. But uh, let's say if it's registered, if a, if a marriage is registered in Greece, it should be working everywhere, basically, at least in Europe. Because that's the same way in the in the U.S. It's been mm-hmm. the same, at least for heterosexual marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing for, is, uh, would they be allowed to register a marriage in Greece if one one of the partners lives and has lived their whole life in Poland, you know, because in Germany there are regulations where you have to, you know, be in Germany for a certain number of time and live with your partner to be available to register a marriage. Well, in the U.S., okay, so in the U.S. we have something called, let me remember the name. <laughs> We have birthright citizenship in this country, which means mm-hmm. like if somebody, like if I was born in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, like I'm automatically a citizen here, and we have like a legal immigration versus you know whatever. So there is a legal immigration process, but you can be a immigrant to this country and marry somebody who's mm-hmm. legal. I mean who. Who's a citizen? Uh, <laughs> but yeah. That's um, so, I mean, that's one of the issues that they're going to have to iron out eventually, I would imagine. <laughs> um, 
So how does the Ukraine-Russia conflict fit into all this, fit into the future of Europe? Oh, that is that is a tough question and <laughs> very actively discussed, I would say, these days. Honestly, I, I don't know. It's very hard to say. It's definitely going to change many things. It's going to be... I was actually talking about this today with a, with a friend I have from Russia, and we're discussing how can the conflict be smooth, even after it's smoothed over, how will the world view um, the Russian community, let's say, how can that be fixed, basically, because we have this whole, I, this whole, um, villainization these days where we, you know, look at people and we're like, yeah, okay, they're the bad guys and then they're the good guys, which is problematic and is problematic for many people. But uh, provided that we don't have a nuclear war and everybody dies, provided that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that would be intense, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it... It depends really on how the if we, if we're talking like a technological sense, it will really depend how the Western world ends up reacting to it. Will it stop any productions? Will it stop any connections between it? So it's very hard to tell, I would say, these days. But you're the historian here. What do you think? So one of the major one of the major impacts of World War Two. Uh, mm -hmm. aside from making the United States a global hegemon, was it spread English all over the globe. Um, mm -hmm. So my thought... See, I've had this thought from essentially as soon as the war started, which is the longer this war goes... And the less the longer this war goes, as long as it's not a nuclear war, mm -hmm. the more likely people are going to have to, especially people across Eurasia, um, or Af actually, let me use a real grad school term, Afro-Eurasia, <laughs> um, are going to have to find alternative energy sources. That, yes, yeah. that is an issue in Europe these days. And I think there was a plan by yeah. 2030 to fully go, you know, not be reliant on gas entirely. Right. So, and this right. had to be yeah. sped up because of the current situation. I, I, yeah, and that's, don't look now, but 2030 is only eight years away. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I can count the number of car chargers. Literally, mm -hmm. I can count the number of car chargers that I, <laughs> that I can see. So... And I can't count the number of cars. So, <laughs> I mean, like, I can look out and just, okay, one car charger, two, three. <laughs> I'm just saying, just saying, throwing it out there. Um, so I think, and I talked to a, a, to a man who has a, a Tesla mm -hmm. for my show. And he told me some things that, I hadn't even thought of his concerns, but he also put some concerns aside. I think the biggest concern I would have if we all decided to go electric or had to go electric is 
whatever you're saving on fuel for your car for electricity, mm-hmm. you would spend that and more on food to to wait for your car to charge. (laughs) People just don't have people just don't have that kind of time either. Like like aside from the fast chargers, like the 20 minute charges for however long for the fast chargers, on the regular chargers, people just don't have that kind of time. Yeah, but honestly, I think that we often underestimate our capacity to come through when we have to. I think if we don't have a different choice, people will just get used to it, you know. COVID was also very uncomfortable and we're not used to not being able to leave our home and meet with friends. But, you know, we got used to it within a year almost. It was not fun, but... Well, so, yeah, but like in this country, and that's the other thing, in America... Literally everything is political. Literally <laughs> everything is political. Of course. And I can run into people even now who just don't think COVID existed. Yeah, that... that yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't... I think... Here's what I really... But here's what I really think. Um, so I think, depending on how the war goes... I think there's going to be a serious migrant situation across Europe and then oh, later for sure. across North America. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it's going to push a new like alternative energy sources situation onto the world. Mm-hmm. And I wonder... Like you were saying earlier about how are we going to make Russia back into a normal country or whatever. I I mean, what many people hypothesize these days is that it won't be what it is right now in a way that, first of all, in its size, because it has a lot of republics within it, and they might just break out and become their own republic. So that would be one thing that potentially could happen. And which this is basically, even historically speaking, that has happened in a lot of when empires used to lose wars, they would cluster and they would break apart and they would cluster. So that that one aspect is very likely to happen. Another thing is the change in the in warfare. Basically, I've actually talked about this with somebody recently about the futurism of warfare and it has even um there are the an interesting book the short history of war i think it's called there they also very actively excessively talk about it how the warfare this days is mostly like drone based and uh, and it's not, and it's very much obviously very much shifting from what was back then but what this conflict has shown us is it's still not fully moved to that you know the idea was that the the wars between developed countries are very unlikely and the wars that will happen and that keep happening are the ones in the developing countries where this like drones they're cheap it's possible it's easy to learn to use them and they can basically participate in them actively and this can keep going for a long time but now when this conflict between two developed countries happened now I think there might be a shift in a mindset where this 
comes basically back on the table. Yeah, where, right. So you're saying possibly more wars with developing, between developed countries. But see then... Hopefully not, you know? (laughs) Well, but see then, okay, fold into that the fact that right now, right now, Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I have friend. I have friends and acquaintances in other states, in mm-hmm. other countries, you know. And this is before virtual reality has proliferated. That's mm-hmm. what I said to the to the man a while back. Yeah, this is all before that's proliferated. Mm-hmm. My thought is, if somebody can do virtual reality that isn't Facebook, mm-hmm. it's gonna go. It's gonna sell like hotcakes. And, oh yeah, for sure. And people are going to so like if you have a relationship, whatever whatever that relationship is with somebody in Latvia or you know South America or South Africa or wherever, are you really gonna? Oh well, I don't want to go to war with that country. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was saying about patriotism. It's it's much it will be, and it is already much harder to urge people to protect the country or to go to war in the name of a country when your community when you don't think of yourself as belonging to a group and this group is your country if it's it's it's, if it's a more global group if it's somebody that is not localized anywhere there is no reason for anyone to go and defend that community no we're sometimes we really underestimate the value of the community we for the human being, for a single human being, I think what we identify ourselves with is a hu- it makes a huge, huge difference for our ideologies, what we are willing to stand for, what if we might be even willing to sacrifice our life for. And very soon, especially with the VR, it might not be a country. It might be some completely something else. Mm. And I mean, we haven't even talked about you know, space exploration. And <laughs> some people think that we're going to be on the moon pretty soon. Some people don't. I don't know what I think about that. What do you think about it? Do you think Elon Musk putting people on Mars or putting people on the moon is going to happen or not? Um, I mean, I'm very doubtful of Elon Musk's endeavors in general mm-hmm. as a neuroscientist and his Neuralink project. I think there is in general a big problem with this kind of projects that are engineering or science based, but they are run by private ventures and not public science like everything else, because basically the leader of the project, the one who is sponsoring it, can do whatever they want. And there's no peer review, there's no proper validation of the results unless it's somebody who's working for them because nobody wants to disclose data when it's for profit. So it really depends on whether the science behind it will be safe, secure, and sound enough to have somebody go to the moon. And even if we go to the moon, I think there is, or or to whatever planet, I think we might go there and then we'll just come back because... You know, it's not, there is going to be a while. I'm pretty sure about this until when we can even think of colonizing, you know. Well, I mean, that's the, as a history person, excuse you, Mm -hmm. as a history person, the thing I always come back to with the moon and Mars and wherever Mm -hmm. else is when Europeans came to the new world, there Mm -hmm. were, there were driving factors. 
there were reasons yeah. that people got on a boat <laughs> and not not yeah. countries but people that people mm-hmm. got on a boat and went to a new continent and what are those you know surely they're going to happen for individual people but i just don't i don't know i mean climate change is one of them which just might turn earth into an uninhabitable rock which would make sense why a lot of people might leave also yeah. the overpopulation because of the aging population that we talked about mm. just finding a housing you know it might be as simple as that finding a job <laughs> so you know if you can't find a house in a big city just go to the moon that'll, that'll be weird like i can't <laughs> find a house where i live but i can find it's on the moon honestly but like considering yeah. the no, real estate crisis we have these days the house even in europe the housing is just raising in prices constantly not even yearly but monthly at this point so oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it would make sense for a lot of people to, i mean nobody's really you know i don't want to say nobody but let's say millennials it's such a trend that people are not really buying houses anymore so you're not really attached anywhere so if a good job turns out somewhere on the moon cheap housing you know if it's livable why not i, I get it it's, <laughs> it's just funny to me like you know i mean plus i mean the other thing i look at is you know like you can teach yourself a computer language and mm-hmm. I get it. I mean, I get it. <laughs> weird. Yeah, it is very weird when you think about it. But, you know, there's nothing really, I mean, there's nothing really attaching me, like, as a person to Earth. I mean, except for, you know, gravity and <laughs> the <laughs> ability to live anywhere else at this point. So, if the opportunity turned up and if the possibilities were better up there, you know, why not? I, I don't see why I mean, not. So. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing about, so the thing about uh, the Black Death, um, mm-hmm. so people always, or people, historians always compare, like, well, when you think about plagues, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Black Death really kind of kicked capitalism off in a way, you know, ever since the Roman times. Anyway, but maybe, maybe people are thinking, like, why am I here? Like, why am I in this place? I don't Mm -hmm. have to be here. I can be somewhere else. I can, you know. Yeah, no, that that, that makes sense. I mean, you know. I don't, I'm, historically, what would you say were the most meaningful reasons uh, that encouraged mass migrations so one of the biggest so one of the biggest migrations that happened um anywhere in the world happened actually in my country it's called the billy migration which is Mm -hmm. short for hillbilly and Mm -hmm. i talk about it a lot on my show um so that's somebody from the rural areas of america going into the city and one of the biggest, and that was jobs. That was all factory jobs or, or whatever, education. Um, mostly factory jobs. Hmm. Um, another big migration um, reason was you had a lot of religious oppression in Europe. There were a lot of religious wars mm-hmm. in Europe. Um, 
actually, and this is something I love to talk about just in life. Um, if you take aside, so if you cut out the, the post world war two world in Europe, if you, so if you leave that aside, uh, Europe had been at war for some, some level of conflict, be it low level or high level, uh, for about a thousand years, maybe mm-hmm. longer. Um, you know, so people yeah, yeah. always escape that. Um, personally, um, there were a lot of, you know, economic changes, a lot of economic disruptions in society. Like one of them was, uh, the biggest one was when the looms came in. One of the biggest mm-hmm. ones was when the automated looms came in. Um, that triggered mass migrations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually one of the, so one of the more interesting fa- side effects of the Spanish flu or causes the Spanish flu was people really hadn't thought about, you have this, we can now move at the, the speed of steam and people hadn't thought about, well, so the virus can move at the speed of steam, mm-hmm. right? And so people hadn't thought about that at all. Um, You know, so I think, you know, same thing, you know, jobs, more economic opportunity. And see, that's what I'm saying. Like, we've never lived in a society where so many people speak the same language. Yeah. And that's what's amazing to me. Like, as an American... You know, I can read German. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can read German. I can, I can translate German, but I couldn't have this conversation in German. Mm-hmm. See, and, but I'm able to talk to so many people around the world, and that's what I tell people. Actually, I have a story. There was a podcast that I was talking to this man about. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to him about having this podcast. Yeah. And he sounded very American. Like he sounded very American, right? <laughs> but he sounded too American. Like <laughs> I couldn't tell where he was from in America. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, where are you from? And he said, oh, I'm from Russia. And I was talking to him in China. <laughs> and... But he sounded completely American, like totally American. And it occurred to me, like, you know, wow. No, yeah, of course. Not only do we understand each other and we can speak to way more people than, you know, any ever, any time in history, but we also have the means to do it and we have the will to do it. I think those two are also quite important, you know. It's not just being able to speak the language, but if you have enough people around you to talk to, you wouldn't have the need to, you know, reach out to someone else, no. But, um, you know, the loneliness epidemic. So that is another issue which urges us to put ourselves out there, maybe even in digital world, and find people from everywhere that might share whatever we are interested in and talk to them. That's, so, you know. yeah. 
No, I, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, but I didn't. Wow. Wasn't yeah. Um. So let me ask you about your podcast. What made you want to do this podcast? Um. Well, I've always loved sci-fi, reading it and writing it, and. I'm a scientist myself, and I often see this huge, huge discrepancy between sci-fi, science, futurology, and philosophy. So I thought, why not make a sci-fi-ish, futurology-ish podcast, which talks about basically what the future might be like, but instead of just taking a certain aspect of society in a literary sense, we actually base it on real technology and real science that's going on and then discuss what happened, what could happen, you know, about the ethical and philosophical aspects of it, of scientific aspects of it. Because, I mean, on one hand, it's always interesting to think what might happen. But also, on the other hand, I think it's important to do that, to know what we're doing today. I think if we look, if we are able to look and, and just think about just as a thought experiment of different futures that we might end up in, that might really affect what kind of technology and what kind of science we want to back these days, what kind of the world we want to be in the future instead of just waiting around and, you know, seeing what happens. Of course, we cannot predict anything. We cannot definitely know what is going to happen, but we can hypothesize. We can always you know, try and tweak the life that we have these days to the future that we want to see. So that is one of the big motivations for why I started it. And in general, you know, as again, as a scientist in academia often, and even just reading science communication, I see that we often lose the big picture. We don't know why the certain research might be really interesting, might be fascinating, but what what after? What will happen with it? So actually being able to link modern tech, modern science to what can happen in the future, it just seems fascinating to me. Well, it, it does. And I, I want to push back a little bit on, on mm-hmm. saying we can't predict the future because I think history allows you to do that. And understanding of history allows very much to to do that you know that's i i agree with you here but also why one of the aspects of what i talk about is transhumanism is because that is such an uncharted territory and that is something we have not encountered historically because i think for you know thousands of years now we've been boiling in our human nature, in our own human condition, you know, using different tools to do the same things and to achieve our same needs and same wants. But what if we can change it? What if we can change human nature somehow? What would the future be like then? That seems like something new to me, some uncharted territory. So, so, you're, that's, saying, so you're saying changing human nature entirely. You know, different aspects of it, of course. I mean, that is generally the idea of transhumanism is to use technology and science to improve the life, but also to change, to improve us as humans. One of which aspects might be to change the human nature. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at politics and if different political 
structures that we have through the centuries, you know, through Greek democracy, we just keep coming back and back to it and falling into the same pitfalls of the whole ordeal. And I think one of the main problems there, why one of the main reasons for that is our human nature, which is inherently problematic. And even talking of evolutionary psychology, we have evolved all these traits that helped us survive when we were cavemen, which we don't really need anymore and which only make our life miserable. One example is how our brain is always seeking danger, which makes so many people suffer from anxiety these days. And what if we can change things like that? And I think one thing that people don't realize, especially when we talk about transhumanism, is how much of it we already have. People think of it as this magical, sci-fi-ish idea, but you know, speaking things as basic as medicine, as glasses, as, you know, even I think some people think, and I do support that, therapy, psychotherapy, that can also all be viewed as transhumanism because it is changing an aspect of, of, a, of a human. And we can go deeper with that. We can change human nature, not, you know, antidepressants already do work on that to some extent. And there are the, the possibilities there are infinite and they can bring to all sorts of results. And it's always interesting to think about them. Well, like here's another example. Um, is the fact that you and I are even talking, is that transhumanism in a way? In a way, of course. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> I think every conversation, practically every conversation we have with somebody else changes us to a little degree to some with some people it's more with some people it's less yeah. it always depends but i would have never been able to have this conversation with you hence i would have never been able to change like i let's say do now or just even as a podcaster in general we would never have this exchange of ideas this exchange of experiences that change our mind that change who we are in many in in a big sense so well, i do think that it is in a way transhumanism already here's another thought here's another thought i just had mm -hmm. so this has this whole world that where somebody were up okay this whole world where there was a common language among a, a set of people that had mm -hmm. happened before it was you know in the post-roman era mm -hmm. uh, yeah. latin stuck around as a language of science for a very long time mm -hmm. um and that but the difference is with english like just regular people and there's also a drive to learn english among like i talked to a to a man in the balkans mm -hmm. and he said that his ability to learn English saved his life. And I thought, wow, mm -hmm. you know, the, the drive to, I need to learn this so I can save my life. <laughs> That's... No, definitely that makes sense. I mean, yeah. this is something that you need practically on a daily basis at your job. There are very few, few, and with time, there are even fewer jobs where you absolutely don't need it, don't need to communicate in a, in a language again, because of the globalization, of course. But at the same time, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that just common folk that, you know, not scientists or anyone, but like it was when the, the Latin was more was prevalent, can learn English and do learn English. I think that is also a big yeah. 
drive towards stopping the gatekeeping in technology and science. You know, back then, people had no say in, in what is being researched, except for, oh, maybe someone is a witch or, you know. Yeah, um, right. And now we are able to read it we're able to go in it we are able to contribute in a way of course there are many many issues with that still and they're ongoing but they're being thought of they're being solved like never before in history so it's interesting you know what what is going to happen what is going to what where this is going to take us where the everybody learning english is going to take us or um, yes, yes. And also, you know, having understanding technology and understanding science and being involved in it is going to take us, you know, it, it is in a way also a common language that can be like, um, <laughs> that can be interesting to people. Well, I think the thing, the thing that you're mixing, the thing that I want to mix in here that... Mm -hmm. I think we've never had, I mean, we have, but not to the extent, is the pop culture element. <laughs> so I talked, one of, one, a friend of mine, actually, uh, she lived in Venezuela, and she taught herself English by listening to Paramore and by <laughs> um, video game chats and online stuff. Right, mm -hmm. and, and she migrated to Spain. Okay, so you add that into the mix that you can learn. It's like through mutual appreciation of pop culture or the desire to do that, you educate yourself more. No, I mean definitely, <laughs> pop culture was a big driver for me to learn English at the time. So yeah, just having things that are available to us when we do have the ability to understand it. But also one thing that I do want to add here, it's, you know, mm, um, the relationship between linguistics and philosophy. And I've always been curious about how philosophy from culture to culture changes from based on the different languages they speak. And I'm thinking whether having this language unifying us, whether having something that we all speak oh, wow. and understand can actually eliminate some of those, you know, boundaries, some or, of those problems between people. Or would we all have the same philosophy? Oh. <laughs> a similar philosophy. Not the same, but a similar. Because yeah. you're right. I mean, there's concepts. So translation is about concepts more than mm -hmm. vocabulary and there was mm -hmm. just i remember like translating german there were just concepts they didn't really have in german yes <laughs> you know like, yeah yeah of course i mean <laughs> yeah just thinking of heidegger definitely <laughs> um, or hegel there's many things that cannot be translated and many and i mean even looking comparing let's say the the Western and Eastern cultures and Eastern languages, they tend to be more collectivistic than Western languages, which are more individualistic. And that really affects the culture. 
but I wonder how much of speaking the same language can move us in one or the other direction, you know? Well, I think inevitably it would move us closer as mm-hmm. a society, as a human society. In, mean, you know. Hopefully, hopefully. So <laughs> always pro. Yeah, I mean, but there's also always the sad part of the languages that are being lost, uh, the minority languages that are being lost every day because they're running out. And was that the culture? Was that the their philosophy is being lost? But yeah. I guess that is something linguists have to deal with. Well, it's also, I mean, you think about the Celtic language, you think about the Gallic language. I forget one of the one of the so-called barbarian groups that attacked mm. the Romans, we don't mm. even know who those people were. <laughs> one of the barbarian groups in the, that attacked the Romans, we don't even know who those people became. Wow. I forget, I forget which one they were, but yeah, it's crazy. This is fascinating. I mean, I'm sure I have a question um, to you as a historian. So do you think for future historians studying uh, how would it how studying modern life be different for future historians in comparison to us now or in 20th century let's say studying two centuries ago or three centuries ago okay um the biggest difference that i see just in normal human beings is the capacity for education Hmm. has increased. Not necessarily everybody's well-educated, but the capacity for that has dramatically increased. Um, I also think one of the things we don't talk about as much, but we should talk about, is like back 200 years ago mm-hmm. people thought that or some people thought that a jewish person or like a you know like these are different people like jew be they jewish or italian or like an italian person would be different would be a different human or a different type of creature from say a german <laughs> Right? Yeah. Okay. So people thought that. And some of these people were leaders. Some of these people were world leaders. And nobody really thinks that today. I mean, nobody seriously thinks that today. So I think that's a big difference. And I think another big difference is we've never had the same or similar pop culture. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think for long. Um, now, I'm, that's going to be sad for for certain, what you called it, minority languages or whatever. But it's going to bring people together more, which I think, you know, especially with our capacity for warfare, which has never been greater, I think that's a big deal. I'm going to be a bit of a devil's advocate here and wonder what if actually having the same language would drive us and push us more and more apart 
in a way that you know how at Christmas dinner, the more people you have there, the more it's likely to have a huge argument to happen. What if it's in a in a in the same way? If let's say back then there were just groups of people that would never communicate and just live their lives without ever having conflict with each other, now that they can't talk the same language, the conflicts will happen. Yeah, but <laughs> most people, most people, not most governments, but most people don't want to be in conflict with each other. That's true. But I think sometimes there are such opposing worldviews that they do spark conflict. Oh, for sure. I mean, for sure. And like I said earlier, I mean, everything in my country is political. <laughs> everything in my country is political. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if, if one group of people decides that another group of people is just evil, it, it's not going to matter. Sure, but most people, I would think, don't think that. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> I mean, I also don't. I do think it's going to be way more optimistic than that. <laughs> I mean, the thing I worry about, the thing I see coming down the road in my own country is our politics are about to get really, like once you get more of a battery-operated car situation, like our politics are going to get really different. Mm -hmm. Like really, really different because my country is, is big. It's spread yeah. out. A lot of people that either believe they have to drive far or have to drive far or whatever. And so, but you're going to get these people that, for some reason, gasoline is just not going to be the the animator, right? Mm -hmm. it's yes, going to be the the thing anymore. Um, it's like nobody talks about how slow dial up is. <laughs> dial up internet. Nobody talks about how, how slow that is anymore, or was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I think that's going to be different. Um, now that you actually bring up this gap, let's say, between liberals and the conservatives and Democrats, um, I've been talking about this with somebody recently um, in respect to microdosing and macrodosing. Just as an example, I want to bring it up here. Um, that is very highly, I would say, this socioeconomic divide, I think, and political divide in this sense more. I think it's very, it is really going to be affected by the growth of transhumanism because imagine having different experiences in life completely different experiences having a different mindset psychologically even more than already now so if some people like i don't know buy a might have some pills that are gonna have, have make them have certain experiences that other people don't have and don't want to have i think that might even increase the gap between these political groups Oh, I mean, I, I certainly see a potential, a huge potential for um, kind of a, like the, let me think, of it, like the haves and the have-nots in this country. Um, mm -hmm. But, and I, I, I think you're right. I think microdosing. Um, but that is just an example. I mean, people who have macrodose or macro, microdose, they often say that they had life-changing experiences. Now, if you think about things like this, even if you think about technology, having a certain technology that can change your life, 
And if only certain groups of those people have, I don't know, I mean, microdosing at this point is more basically has a more liberal aspect to it than conservative. What if, you know, this people have this life-changing experiences and there's another group of people that are already has opposing views that they don't. Is that going to push people more and more apart? That I've, I'm almost wondering about that. You well, know, I, I, here's mm-hmm. what I wonder. Um, so I talk to people out in the world, uh, as mm-hmm. we say, the which where is the real world? Where is the real world? And you mm-hmm. know, when and where is the real world? Especially like you know this. This is happening virtually, right? So, but I talk to people that don't know what a podcast is. Hmm. Um, I talk to people, even, you know, young, young people who don't know how to, like, they don't know how to communicate on a podcast, except on a phone, like, except (laughs) on a phone call. So my question is, like, are we going to set up a situation where the, the experiences are so different that you can't really relate to people anymore? Yes, that is... That is a great point, exactly. And if we cannot relate to people, how can we coexist with people that we can't relate to? We end up being something like different species in a way. I mean, of course, there is this philosophical view in general that we can never know how another person thinks because we never know how they perceive the world and there's no way for us to ever understand that. However, if it's not as tangible now as it might be if we have certain experiences that really drive us apart and i wonder exactly how can we coexist with people who we cannot relate to is our xenophobia gonna kick in are we gonna be more accepting are we gonna have completely different political movements because of that is it gonna have a a greater divide you know if like even talk of my microdosing again if only a certain even economic groups of people can have access to it and then others can't, the, the wage gap might grow, the divide, the socioeconomic divide between people might grow. So it's very interesting how these groupings might change based on the technological and life-altering experiences we have, as you said. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, but you always... So I always... There's a story I always, or an observation I like to make, right? Mm -hmm. And the observation is when you hear about, when you tell the history of the printing press, okay? Mm -hmm. You never, you never, I guarantee you, I can almost guarantee you, I've only met you for two hours, but I can almost guarantee you that you've never heard the history of the printing press told from the perspective of the priests and the monks who were thrown out of a job. Right? Yeah, of course. This is- I, <laughs> there's always going to be people that everything comes along. And I mean, those monks, they had a good thing going for hundreds of years. <laughs> they had a good thing going. And they weren't always celibate, people. I hate to tell you, but they, they weren't always celibate. Um, you know, there was a somewhere in Europe that I saw this, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a, there was an abbey and a monastery and next to each other. And they had a tunnel going back and forth. <laughs> and 
there were more like there were more skeletons than there were people on the records. I'm just saying those monks and nuns had a good thing going until the printing press came along. <laughs> you know, but you never hear that that story. You have even me as 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 educated in history as I am, you have to dig into the story, the official story to to see the other side of it. Yeah. I mean, of course, even we hear, I think the story that we do hear more in this aspect is what happened to people thrown out of the jobs because of the industrialization. Yeah. And right. that is going to, in a way, that's going to keep happening and was more and more develops. However, I don't know what, what happened to those monks. Now I'm, now I'm genuinely invested. <laughs> well, no, well, okay. So there were monasteries. So let me back up. There were monasteries all over Europe that had a great thing going where they could, um, they would, uh, they would basically forge holy relics and they would sell them <laughs> at huge expense to, to the buyers. Okay. And then, so you had, um, the, the European printing press was invented by somebody other than Gutenberg. What Gutenberg did was Gutenberg made a business model out of it. Okay, so that, that so there, are, there are books that predate Gutenberg, but what he did was make a business model out of it. Now, he didn't make a... Um, he actually died penniless. <laughs> but, wow. Yeah. So, but you had towns that, that came up that were built around monasteries, usually, although sometimes abbeys, but usually monasteries. Um, you also had, um, so monasteries were, were um, a lot of times were where families would uh, store, basically stash uh, gay sons, you know, people that were gay or, or whatever, oh. problematic children, um, be they monks or be they boys or girls. Um, and the thing is, the scientific revolution made that less desirable as a, as a life outcome. Um, so that was massively destabilizing. This is now, fascinating. I didn't know this. It's interesting. Yeah. Now, add to that, okay, add to that that you had the Black Death, okay? <laughs> now, what the Black Death was, the Black Death was fascinating because what it was was now, you and I both know this. We both know that you can't live with what with uh, domesticated animals in your house. Okay? Mm. You can't do that because it's not healthy. It's not hygienic. It's not healthy. Um, they didn't know that in Europe <laughs> at that time. Um, which, so what you get is you get um, a, a more densification of, of the population, which leads to the Black Death. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Which leads to that. So you have this happening and then you had for the first time you had extra money running around. Now it's, it's fascinating when you study the human beings relationship to, to abstract things of abstract value. That's actually really an interesting concept to study because that wasn't always the case. Right think about it think about it like this right i have 
paper rectangles in my pocket, which mm-hmm. I can take somewhere and buy something with or trade for something. Okay. That's a crazy concept to think about. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. They're not intrinsically useful. Of course. Right? It's not like, Mm -hmm. hey, I need this. Let me give you a piece of cheese or let me give you a wheel of cheese. Oh, I need the wheel of cheese. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I can use the wheel of cheese right now. (laughs) The wheel of cheese is always a necessity. (laughs) No, that's. That's okay. Well, that would be a stupid example, but so no, no, I, I understand what you mean, of course. Yeah, 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 I think sometimes we have trouble connecting those events, the historical events that we view as discrete, but it's always fascinating how they are, in a way, all a chain reaction that have led to where we are now. And yeah, well, think about, think about it like this. Um, so prior to 2008, before 2008, we <laughs> didn't have the internet was different. Okay, mm-hmm. very much in a in a in a new stage, and it was very much sort of a curiosity. And then 2008 happened, and there was a worldwide catastrophe, a, a global yeah. kind of a a resetting. Mm-hmm. And so you had all these young people that couldn't go to the mall; they couldn't go out. So what did they do? They they sat in their room and they chatted online. And then these people grew up and there was a plague, right? And they're they're the workers now. Yeah. And they're like, well, how can we have a job if we have to sit at home? I know we'll go on Skype. <laughs> <laughs> we'll use Zoom. I of course. Yes. And a lot of people all over the country that I've talked to, all over my country, a lot of people told me that, you know, 2020 was the year a computer went from being a toy to a tool, right? And I think there was like a rude awakening on the part on a lot of people had this rude awakening where it was like, like, I need to have a computer. This is now a toy. This is now a tool. Yeah, and we've we've stopped viewing our life without it because it it wasn't just something you were like, okay, I'm going to limit my use to two hours a day. It doesn't work like that anymore if you have to work on it. Yeah. It doesn't work like that at all. Mm -hmm. You think about, um, so people talk about, um, you know, the return to the office and blah, blah, blah. And how now working from home is is temporary and we're going to get back to because the, 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 the landlord man, he needs to have, you know, he needs his building going and I need to help him out. And Mm -hmm. yeah, but okay. Those people were laid off. And what are you going to think about your boss after he lays you off? You're not going to care about his, you know, his concerns aren't going to matter to you. Mm -hmm. And so that's another thing. And the other thing I think is when I went on Discord for to promote my podcast and I saw mm-hmm. what Discord was for the first time, and I was like, wow, <laughs> you can share files with thousands of people. Yeah. You can have a video conference with thousands of people. <laughs> I would, and I 
tell this to people. I wouldn't bet on there being an office culture for too much longer. Honestly. <laughs> no. I no. totally agree. I wouldn't bet on there being. <laughs> no. And mm -hmm. so I, I talked to a man on my show about Ebola. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing. So um, the world is warming. I think you and I can both agree on the world. Yeah. Um, viruses love grasslands. Okay. Just Can you hang on for a second? I need to plug in my computer. I think the charger is. All right. Just a second. Okay, I'm back. What I, what I was saying was um, viruses, viruses love grasslands. So what happens when a new virus comes along and this virus is more deadly than COVID? Which will very likely happen because they keep changing and, you know, just the melting of the ice, caps. Of ice, of course. Yeah, it just releases things out there that were not supposed to be out there. And we saw how deadly it can be with this pandemic. Nobody is really preventing another one from happening. And we know how underprepared we are. Well, and the thing is, like, the thing I think about now is the mastodon. Now, anything that can give a mastodon a cold mm -hmm. can kill you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you have mastodons on thawing. <laughs> So. Can you hear the construction noise? I, I can, actually. What time is it there in, in Germany? It's 4 p.m. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm sorry. Who is, I guess. Who is building anything on Saturday? Oh, 4 p.m., right? It's, it's so weird. <laughs> where, where in Germany do you live? Uh, I'm in Munich. Munich? Uh, that's yeah, but still, it's... um. It's the suburbs, so people very rarely build anything here. So I'm surprised they've decided to engage in this <laughs> on Saturday at 4 p.m. I'm sorry. Are they building a stadium? The only thing they build in America on Saturday, other than a highway, is a stadium. I don't know. <laughs> I really doubt that my upstairs neighbors are trying to build a stadium for my own sake. Oh, it's, it's your upstairs neighbors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Imagine though that would have been very painful for me. Yeah, I don't know if we'll be able. Maybe we can wrap up quickly or something yeah. like that. So we don't have to. We've been on yeah. for an hour and a half. Ash, mm -hmm. it was wonderful to talk to you. Um, tell us about your show. Ah, uh, thank you, thank you for hosting. Thank you. It was very interesting to talk with you, Ben, and thank you for inviting me to talk. Ah. Uh, so the podcast I host is called Musings on Transhumanism. And I, as I mentioned, we talk about the what the future of the humankind can be like and what the scientific, technological ways we can go there and what would the ethical and philosophical implications of those futures be. Basically, as a love child of sci-fi, philosophy, science. Um, 
So if you're interested, I would be happy to have you as a listeners. Oh, cool. <laughs> and are you open to having guests? I mean, yes, of course. I'm always looking forward to talking about futurism of different aspects. Um, yeah, I'm not a scientist, but I certainly have ideas about the future. Oh yeah, for sure. I th I, I was gonna write to you afterwards and say that we should do a podcast together because uh, on my show, because I think there are a lot of things we can continue talking about. Well, I'd love to do that, and uh, I've listened to some of your episodes, and you're you're a very interesting podcaster. Thank you very much. I'm working on having more guests right now, so it's not just monologue. But yeah, I mean, it's it's. Um, I really like your show too. Definitely, it was such a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you, thank you, and uh, like I always say, folks, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. And um, thank you, Ash, and I'll talk to you later. All right, hang on just a second, please. Yep.